Life Audio. That jazzy music means it's time for Truth Tribe with Doug Grothuis, professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. I am your guest and your host. And today we are talking about jazz, jazz and culture. I want to start with a quote from the great jazz pianist composer Dave Brubeck lived well into his 90s and just passed away a few years ago. Dave Brubeck said this, There's a way of playing safe, there's a way of using tricks, and there's the way I like to play, which is dangerously, where you're going to take a chance on making mistakes in order to create something you haven't created before. So as we think about jazz, culture, and a biblical worldview, let me start with a case study of a friend of mine, a Lutheran pastor who's now well into his 70s. He's not a full-time pastor, but he's still very active, teaching, preaching, mentoring. And I'll call him Pastor Smith. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-497-4410. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in... Anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-497-4410. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-497-4410. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. When he became a Christian, for a time, he gave up on jazz. He knew jazz and he loved jazz, but he thought, well, maybe it's just worldly to enjoy jazz and play jazz because he played saxophone. So for many years, he really paid very little attention to jazz. Uh, But then in recent years, he has re-owned, so to speak, his love for jazz And he plays saxophone, and he and some friends get together about once a week and jam, play jazz. And I've had some wonderful conversations with this man who's a real saint, loves the Bible, and so on. But it indicates, I think, the issue of the Christian's relationship to culture in general, more specifically to music, and then even more specifically to jazz and In some places, jazz has a bad name. The idea is that it began in houses of prostitution, and there are a lot of drugs and drunkenness and so on. So we wouldn't want to have anything to do with that, would we? Well, I will challenge that during this program. But as we think about jazz, Christianity, and culture, let's consider something about culture in general. I did a program on theology of culture recently. So we want to start with the creation mandate. We are made in God's image and likeness, and we were put here by a personal creator to develop the world for his glory and for the human good. We know the human beings fell 
from their original state through rebellion. So sin came upon the world. Nevertheless, we are still called to develop nature into culture using our unique human abilities that are God-given. Now, how should Christians interact with culture? I've dealt with this previously, but let me review the three themes that I emphasize. Some aspects of culture just have to be rejected because they come from the fall and they are irredeemable and they are not part of a life well-lived. So we reject things, for example, like pornography, gambling, human trafficking. You can't redeem those things. You simply have to stand against them and try to eliminate them or to at least ameliorate uh, their effects in the world to lessen the negativity of their presence in the world. And then also we need to affirm or conserve what is good, strengthen things that remain, so to speak. So anything in culture that is worthwhile, such as great art or great music, should be recognized as such as a gift from God and then conserved. All right. And then thirdly, we want to transform culture to make it more honorable to God. We want our societies to be more just, more righteous, provide more opportunities for human flourishing, and so on. So we want to transform culture. And that means being involved with culture, not just critiquing bad culture or supporting culture that we like, but also making culture by writing novels and philosophy books and making music and writing poetry and being involved in dancing and ballet, so many things. So this is what you might call culture care. And by culture care, I mean the idea of tending the garden that God gave us from Genesis 2. And I would appeal here to Nakato Fujimura and Mark Leberton's book, Culture Care, which came out in 2017 with University Press. Let me read you a verse from Jesus, well-known from Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16. You are the salt of the earth, and if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. So the images there are of a preservative and a spice, salt, and then to be light, to illuminate the world with goodness. But we could put this in the larger category of caring for the world, for nature, of course, and also caring for culture. Now, let me introduce another concept, and that is called common grace. Common grace is the idea that all gifts come from God, the Father of lights. We see that in James 1, and that God will give gifts even those to those people who are not redeemed. He cause, causes the light to shine and the rain to fall on the just and the unjust, as Jesus said. And this is very much developed in the thinking of the Dutch philosopher, theologian, and statesman Abraham Kuyper. So common grace means non-saving grace, so to speak. So if you appreciate the art, let's say the painting of a non-Christian, and you think it really is worthwhile and beautiful, you wouldn't say, 
well, that was a fluke, or I guess I shouldn't enjoy it because the painter, let's say Mark Rothko, wasn't a Christian. No. If you really have identified something objectively good and beautiful, then we need to return praise to God for that, whether it was created by a Christian or a non-Christian. Now, I'm going to apply this idea of common grace to jazz. Now, jazz has been influenced by Christianity, certainly, because one of the roots of jazz is Negro spirituals. And that's where the people that were enslaved from Africa sang their hearts out to the Lord to try to find redemption. And it's amazing that those who were enslaved took on the religion of their slavers, those who brought them here and enslaved them, and really found these wonderful themes of redemption in Christianity. So they they sang of the reality of Jesus, of his cross. They, they yearned for redemption in the world to come but also in this world as well. So certainly there is a gospel element to the history of jazz, and Bill Edgar has pointed that out in his recent book, A Supreme Love, which is about jazz, and I recommend that book, except for a few unfortunate references to critical race theory authors that he put in. But overall, that's a fine book. Bill Edgar is a theologian, and he's written a number of books over the years. He's also a fine jazz pianist. Now, what is jazz that we should be mindful of it? We certainly don't live in a jazz age. The market for jazz is very small. There aren't very many jazz, if any, superstars in culture today. But when I say jazz, I don't mean something called smooth jazz, like Kenny G or things of that. That's kind of a sickly pseudo-jazz but I mean a kind of music that swings, that has improvisation at the heart of it. A music that's rooted in slave songs and spirituals that goes back to New Orleans and Chicago. It's a uniquely American art form, very significantly influenced by African Americans. People like Louis Armstrong, Jelly Roll, Morton, Duke Ellington later on, John Coltrane, Miles Davis. I don't want to racialize jazz, though. This is a controversial issue. I don't think that there's anything uniquely uh, black or African-American about jazz, but I would say that African-Americans have been at the heart and are at the root of jazz, but that uh, people of other colors have contributed significantly to jazz as well. So let me talk about the nature of jazz. I said a moment ago that real jazz swings. And Duke Ellington wrote a song called It Don't Mean a Thing If It Ain't Got That Swing. Swing basically means syncopation. We could get more technical, but to syncopate means to use the offbeat and make it the right beat. So typically rock music is not syncopated. I enjoy a lot of rock music, especially progressive rock music. But it doesn't typically swing. It doesn't have that light, improvisational, offbeat sensibility. It's more do-do-pa, do-do-pa, that kind of thing. 
as opposed to swing, which is do 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 like that. That was three four actually. That was from Take Five by Dave Rubick. So it swings, it's syncopated, and it lives on improvisation. And by improvisation, I don't simply mean the trumpeter of a saxophonist taking a solo. I mean that the musicians listen to each other and improvise around what the other musicians are doing. I recently saw a jazz concert in New Orleans. I was there to give some lectures at an apologetics conference. And when I'm there at the Defend Conferences at New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, I'm always eager to eat good Cajun or Creole food and to take in a jazz concert. So I was able to go to Snug Harbor and uh, listen to a jazz drummer's group. And it was very joyful. There was so much interaction between the musicians. The group was led by the drummer, a man named Harlan Riley, and he had what they call big ears. Don't mean that physically, but big ears means that you listen intently to what the other musicians are doing and you respond accordingly. It's collaboration, improvisation. Another significant thing about jazz is that it has a history and a tradition, and jazz musicians know the standards. That's not just three or four standards, but dozens and dozens, if not more, standards as part of their repertoire. It's part of their musical lineage, their heritage. Let me give an example of this. I wrote about this at All About Jazz, but I saw the great Pat Martino play in Chicago in 2012, and after the first set, I stayed for two sets, two nights in a row. I asked uh, Pat Martino if his group played Sonny, which was a pop song that he made into a jazz song years ago, and other jazz musicians have done that as well. And he said, no, this group doesn't do Sonny. But then he looked at me and said, you never know. So he played the second set, and for the encore, he looked at his organist and said, Sonny? And Pat Bianchi nodded. Then he looked at his drummer and said, Sonny. And the drummer, Carmen Inture, nodded. And then he counted off Sonny and played this blisteringly beautiful rendition of Sonny. Now, you have to understand that the group had never played this together. But they knew it because it was part of the canon of jazz. Jazz is also known for virtuoso soloists such as Louis Armstrong on trumpet, one of the great innovators, Charlie Parker on alto sax, Miles Davis on trumpet, Duke Ellington on piano, of course, a great composer as well, John Coltrane on saxophone, Sonny Rollins on saxophone, Pat Martino on jazz guitar, another great Pat still with us, uh, Pat Metheny on jazz guitar. And this is only a few words about jazz. One could go on and on. But where I live in Denver, we have an excellent jazz culture. We have a jazz studies program at Metro State University. We have a number of good jazz clubs. The best, I think, is Dazzle Jazz, which has national groups three or four times a month, and they have local jazz just about every night. And I've kind of adopted this as my chaplaincy, so to speak. When I'm there, I try to be a godly presence. I pray for the musicians, the owners, the workers. I've been able to introduce two groups there 
In fact, I introduced Pat Martino back in 2016. And boy, was I nervous before that because I had done so many different kinds of speaking, preaching, teaching philosophy, theology, apologetics, etc. But I had never introduced a musician. So I fretted before I did that. But I got up there and I said a few things about Pat. And I said, some of you may know that Pat had a serious brain injury about 50 years ago. Not 50, more like 40 years ago. And he almost died. Uh, but the Lord brought him through it. And here he is. And when I said the Lord brought him through it, the audience applauded. I thought that was a great moment. And then I said, uh, El Hombre, Pat Martino. His first album was called El Hombre. So I'm not really much of a jazz chaplain. I'd have to be there more often. I'd have to be more involved with the workers and owners there. I have some involvement. But I like that idea of Christians taking on secular venues and becoming a kind of de facto chaplain in that environment. I'll just leave it at that. Now, let me speak briefly to this idea that jazz is gutter music, that it comes out of prostitution and drug abuse and alcohol abuse. Uh, Bill, Bill Edgar does a good job of this in his book, A Supreme Love. But first of all, it doesn't only come out of those environments, let's say, in New Orleans in the 20s and 30s. The roots are broader than that. And moreover, even if the music began in that setting, it doesn't mean the music itself is tainted by immorality. One can play the music today and not be involved in any of those sins. And I think music can transcend its environment of origin to some extent. But then again, you can't really say it is uniquely based in a vile or vicious culture. It doesn't follow. Now, I've even heard some criticisms of jazz that border on racism, and I'm not one to invoke racism promiscuously. I won't go into it, but the great conservative writer of the book Ideas Have Consequences has a section in there about how jazz is really primitive. Richard Weaver is the author. I wrote an essay on this at All About Jazz. Now, I'm a political conservative and a jazz lover, and I find no contradiction between those and a Christian as well. And what I'm giving you here is a Christian appreciation of jazz. So let me talk briefly as we finish up about how jazz can shape our Christian witness. One of the great values of jazz is to spend time in the woodshed. That means you develop your skills by practicing. And as Christians, we need to develop our skills in understanding the Bible and communicating the Bible. I think of 2 Timothy 2.15, Paul's writing to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, and who correctly handles the word of truth. When I see a tremendous jazz musician giving a drum solo or a saxophone solo, I think I would like to handle scripture like that. I would like to do apologetics as well as that man or woman is playing that instrument. Jazz would not be jazz without improvisation. And in the Christian life, we improvise on themes. We know the one true God because of his gracious revelation to us in the Bible and in Christ. And of course, we're in many settings where we prepare. For example, I might prepare, I always prepare to preach or teach, but then there's a lot of, there are a lot of settings for witness where you improvise. 
And I recently wrote an article on that about anecdotes in my life where I've been able to do apologetics on the fly. But if you know the scripture and if you followed your calling, then you can improvise within those situations. And jazz is the great improvisational art, but it's not winging it. Good improvisation is deeply rooted in jazz history and in a technical proficiency with one's instrument. Jazz also has this sense of call and response. Let me give an example of this from Scripture, Acts 19, 8 through 10. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Acts 19, 8-10. Paul knew Christ. He knew the Old Testament. He knew the teachings of the other apostles. And he went out and improvised and interacted with people. You see that in Acts 17 as well, for example. And then there's this idea of syncopation or swinging, what uh, the great jazz critic Whitney Belay called the sound of surprise. Jazz is the sound of surprise. Let me give an example of this from Luke 19, 1 through 6. We see Jesus syncopating. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. He wanted to see who Jesus was, but because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. You must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. And we know the end of the story where Zacchaeus repents, and Jesus commends him. And in Luke 19.10, Jesus says, The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. But you can see here that Jesus is syncopated. I mean, would you expect to see a guy up in a tree, uh, even if you are the Son of God? So he sees a man up in the tree, and he commands him, Come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And salvation comes to that house. So in the power of the Spirit, and according to the Word of God, we should be able to improvise, to have dialogue, and to syncopate. Those are deep and treasured values in jazz. So I think jazz can inspire us. We can learn to enjoy it. We can learn from its virtues, as I've said. And I think we can cultivate the jazz world for the common good. As I said, you may want to attend a jazz club and be something like a chaplain or get to know jazz musicians and try to communicate the gospel to them. If you are a musician yourself, then there's nothing wrong with being involved in the world of jazz. John Patitucci, a great jazz bass player, is a strong evangelical Christian from what I've heard. The late Ron Miles, who sadly passed away about a year ago, was the head of the jazz studies program at Metro State University. I saw him perform many times. And he had a tremendous career. He was an excellent teacher and a fine Christian witness as well. So let me give you a few resources to read or to watch. There's the Ken Burns series. Jazz came out about 20 years ago. Ten-part film series that's also made into a book. Ted Joya has a book called How to Listen to Jazz. 
I have a number of essays that are all about jazz. I'll just read you some of the titles, how jazz can shape. Actually, this is not at all about jazz. This is at Defend Magazine. How jazz can shape apologetics. And then at all about jazz, I have essays called The Virtues of Jazz. Another one called How Teachers Can Swing in the Classroom. Another one called John Coltrane and the Meaning of Life. And at another website, I have a review of the film called Whiplash. Uh, that is at a website called And Philosophy. I have another essay called Jazz Suffering and the Meaning of Life at All About Jazz. And so on. So another book I'd recommend would be Robert Gelinas's book, Finding the Groove, Composing a Jazz-Shaped Faith. That came out in 2012. Uh, Robert was a student at Denver Seminary. He's a graduate. He's a local pastor here in the Denver area. And then another book, introductory book, would be Why Jazz? A Concise Introduction by Kevin Whitehead. So this has been Doug Grotheis, jazz fan, apologist, philosopher, professor of philosophy at Denver Seminary. I'm glad that you joined us. And if you're interested, please go to my webpage, douglasgrotheis.com, or go to the Denver Seminary webpage and look into our apologetics program. That would be denverseminary.edu. And please tell a friend about this podcast, Truth Tribe. Thank you for listening. Truth Tribe is a production of Life Audio and Salem Media. If you liked what you heard today, please take a second to rate and review this podcast in your favorite podcast app so that more listeners like you can find the show. For more faith-filled, inspirational podcasts, visit us at lifeaudio.com. Hey, everybody. I'm Dale. And I'm Tamara. And we're hosts of the Kynos Project podcast. Where we help you tackle ancient Christian truths in everyday settings. The word kynos means new, and that's exactly what we want to do on our podcast. Bring something new from what is old in our faith. And on this show, you might hear us explore topics like what the Bible has to say about student loan forgiveness, discuss how the satanic temple affects our view of religious liberty in America, or even question why is it that so many people are having rapture anxiety. To learn more about the podcast, go to lifeaudio.com.